Well, if you are a police officer, if you are a firefighter, if you are a member of the military, you, you kind of have one thought that's tucked away in the back of your mind. And, and the thought is this, this could be my last day. I mean, during the course of what I'm doing today, I could be called to make the ultimate sacrifice in the line of duty. And sadly, we see this reality in the headlines. Sometimes it seems almost daily that we see this. This thought fascinates me. I don't, when I get ready to go to work in the morning and, and visit people and go into the law office and study, I don't have a thought in my mind that this could be my last day. In the course of the duties, my life could be uh, taken from me because of what I was doing for a living. But some do, and we're very, very thankful that they do, and we need to be praying for them. But why? Why do they think this way? And part of that answer is, unfortunately, reality, right? Cops, firemen, military men and women do end up giving the ultimate sacrifice, right? But I mean, why do they sign up for that? Why do they do that? Why do they take that job knowing that this is what could happen to them? What drives them to do that? They know that this is true, and they're okay with it. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the profession that they are. I would imagine the answer is this, because they believe in what they're doing. They fully are committed to doing their jobs no matter what it takes. To them, they know the risks, and they've said it's worth it. And I think that's what's so admirable, and that's why we respect that, or we should, because it's a parallel. It's a parallel that our hearts resonate with deeply, because in the life of a disciple, do we believe in the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel to the extent that we are fully committed to it as the driving force in our lives, and we will follow it to the end no matter what? Do we believe in that message that, in other words, is the life of sacrifice that Jesus calls us to, because we've already heard it today, is as a Christian, is the life of sacrifice that Jesus calls us to, every one of us as Christians, would we say it's worth it? If so, why would we say it's worth it? And so Jesus is going to talk about these things today. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 10. Thank you, Lenny, for reading our passage this morning. Last week, we heard that Jesus continued to warn his disciples about the coming persecution because of his followers, because they are rather his followers. Three times he told them last week, do not fear. He said, because God knows the truth, because we are to fear God above man, and because our loving, sovereign, heavenly Father watches over us, just like he watches over all of creation, even the birds. Therefore, we trust God to the end, even the end of our lives, knowing who our God is. This week, Jesus starts off with strong words, as we have heard Yay, more strong words from Jesus, right? He's just, the last couple weeks, just been one after the other. But nestled among these strong words of Jesus are some solid encouragements for us. But, but look again, just refresh us from where Len read. Look at verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Strong words, right? And what on 
earth is Jesus talking about here? I mean, isn't Jesus the Prince of Peace? Didn't he come to bring peace? You know, like feathered back hair, 80s Jesus holding the lamb, like skipping through the field. That's, that's the Jesus. But he says, no, no, I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Jesus tells them that don't even think that I've come to bring peace. And let's get this straight from the jump. He's speaking metaphorically, okay? We don't get real swords, okay? When you become a Jesus, you don't get become a Jesus. When you become a Jesus follower, you don't get an actual sword. Jesus isn't saying he's coming with an actual sword, nor are we being called here to actual physical violence, right, in the means of evangelization or anything like that. Check the dark corners of church history. Forced conversion at the edge of the sword is, didn't go well. It's, it's not a good thing. F.F. Bruce writes that the sword would be the effect of his coming, not the purpose of his coming. And so if the sword is a metaphor, what does it represent? Well, it represents what you might think. War, a battle, a fight, conflict, tension, two opposing sides coming together in conflict. And Matthew here is actually quoting Micah 7. So his hearers would have known that. It's from Micah chapter 7, referencing Israel and their own conflicts internally. And Jesus says that he will bring conflict as well between father and son, between mother and daughter, between daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. And he says that your enemies would be in your own household even. I mean, why? Why does he say? He tells us in verse In verse 37, look at verse 37 again. This is why. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It comes down to love. It comes down to affections. It comes down to priorities. For a Christian, we are to love Jesus above everything and everyone in our lives. Lenny read it for us. The great commission, or the, great, the greatest commandment, rather, right? We know that. And love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not news. That came from Deuteronomy 6. That's always what it's been. That's the Shema. That's what Israel said twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what we've always been called to. And Jesus says, guess what? That even goes to things and even people. He doesn't mean that we are to hate our families. And in another gospel, that's what Jesus uses. He uses even stronger words and says, if you do not hate your mother and your father, you are not worthy of me. He's using those terms as superlatives, as these hyperbolic kind of shocking language to show what he's talking about. He's not talking about actual physical violence, and he's not talking about actually hating your family. It's a comparison. And he uses shocking language to to jar us into understanding how much he's actually calling us to. And so again, Jesus uses this shocking metaphor of a sword to say this. Loving Jesus above all will bring conflict with some. Loving Jesus above all will bring conflict with some. Imagine someone dropping that line. Okay, guys, you're dating this girl And she says, if you don't love me more than your mom, you're not worthy of me. 
run away. <laughs> Human beings say that. We have a name for them. They're called psychopaths. <laughs> and you should turn around and you should run. Right? If we have a relationship where someone says that to you and says, look, we're friends, but you should not love any more friend more than you love me. I'm your chief king friend, okay? Let's get that straight. That is not okay. And so imagine again being a disciple and hearing Jesus drop this. What is he talking about? That's a crazy, crazy statement. We should love him more than anything else in this world. I've heard that before, okay? I remember Deuteronomy in Jewish Sunday school. I remember them teaching me that. But now he's applying it to himself. That's crazy talk. And Jesus is making it clear that if you actually live like this, if you actually live and do what he has called us to do in loving Jesus more than anything else, there will be conflict. There has to be. There has to be some level of conflict with a life fully committed to Jesus as your highest priority. And I'm going to say there's going to be conflict in at least three areas. The world, others, and our own hearts. First, the world. The world is in rebellion against God. The world is set up against God. God is king and ruler of all the earth. Jesus is sitting on the throne right now, ruling and reigning. But he has some rebel subjects in his kingdom. And their agenda is anti-God. They're against God. So if we are here as the kingdom outpost of Highlands Bible Church in Vernon, New Jersey, and we are then for God, don't you think that will bring a conflict with the world that is against God? It's going to happen. One of the first places we see is that we will be in conflict with the world, the sword of conflict. Second, with others, awkward family holiday dinners, snide comments about our allegiance to Jesus or how much we go to church. Many a husband or a wife has converted to Christianity only to find that their spouse is not exactly excited about their new conversion or even resists it. Our employers, our friends, not supportive, even opposing our new life in Christ. The sword of conflict will enter into our relationships with others. We will see it, we will feel it, because we are supposed to love Jesus with everything we have, and others are not. That's naturally going to cause a conflict. And third, within our own hearts. We'll have conflict in the world, we'll have conflict with others, we'll have conflict in our own hearts. When we sign up to be a Christian, we just kicked off a civil war in our hearts. Because our hearts are raging against God. We still have remaining sin in our hearts. If you're visiting with us today, sorry, none of us here are perfect and have arrived. We all have sin in our hearts, and that sin rages against what God calls us to. And so, yes, there is a civil war in our hearts, and Galatians 5 talks about that. In 17, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Isn't that great? The life of a Christian. It's like, my flesh tells me to do this, but God calls me to do that. And I don't want to. And there's the conflict. Conflict within the world, against the world. Conflict against others. Conflict in our own hearts. Church, there's a battle going on all day, every day, between who God calls us to be and what our remaining sin tempts us to be. 
And it's also worth pointing out that if you are not yet a Christian, if you have not bowed the knee to Christ, if you've not submitted to him as Lord and Savior of your life, your life is full-time war against God. That's what it is. You're just, you're on the other side. You are, as Romans will tell us, actually an enemy of God. And that's the beauty of the gospel, right? But right now, if you are not in Christ, you are at war with God. The sword of conflict is your sin that separates you from a holy God, from a creator, from a loving heavenly father. And the only way to resolve that conflict is to turn from that rebellion and turn in faith and repentance to God through Jesus Christ. But as Christians, this war, again, the remaining sin rages on in our heart. The fight for biblical sexual purity in a pornified culture. The battle against our emotions when our spouses or our children push our buttons. The struggle to not turn to the idols of this world for comfort and refuge. The times we, we fight to, to see through the darkness of depression or fear, worry, and anxiety to rest in the truth of the gospel, the sword of conflict. That's what Jesus is talking about. Loving Jesus above all will bring conflict with some. And so another hard truth that, that shakes out of this is that if you claim to be a Christian and that you don't really see much conflict in your life, check the ground that you're standing on. Jesus is saying this is, this is the spiritual reality of a Christian. If, if you're a Christian and you don't see some level of conflict in your life, check the ground that you are standing on. Jesus said the sword of conflict will be in a Christian's life in some way, shape, or form. That is actually healthy. That is actually natural to be in conflict with the world, others, and our hearts, right? And so here's the thing. The answer is not in the extremes, right? Some people love and thrive on conflict, right? That's called Twitter, if you ever want to go there, right? <laughs> That's not what Jesus is talking about, right? There should be some natural level of conflict between us at those levels. The sword should be present metaphorically somewhere, but our lives should not be characterized by continual conflict. Christians shouldn't go around picking fights with people because they want to force their views down their throat, right? Our lives shouldn't consist of an abundance of conflict, but rather, loving Jesus above all will bring conflict with some. And Jesus goes on to say that our supreme love for Jesus should express itself in supreme sacrifice. Look at verse 38. He says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And if we just park on that, that phrase right there, significant here, guess what? First time in Matthew we've seen the cross. He drops it right here. We're 10 chapters in, he hasn't talked about the cross, now he talks about the cross. What's also really significant and interesting is who is he applying it to? Not himself. He's applying it to us, his disciples. Every single person there did not have to stretch our imagination the way that we kind of have to think about what a cross is, right? We know from everything we've talked about in the cross, everyone who was there knew exactly what a Roman cross was. They've seen them. They've probably seen their friends hanging on them. It is a terrible instrument of torture and humiliation and death. They knew what that cross was. And their Savior, the guy who they think is the Messiah, just said, if you're coming with me, you better bring a cross. What? Again, what? 
And this, of course, is where Jesus will die as our substitute on a cross. But for now, he says, your cross. This is your cross. And the saying that we all have our crosses to bear has been completely neutered and stripped of its meaning. Bearing a cross doesn't mean enduring any trivial hindrance to our comfort or sitting in traffic is not bearing your cross. Dealing with cranky kids or a terrible boss is not bearing a cross. Instead, Jesus tells the disciples and us that if we're following Jesus, we must be ready to give. We must pack it along with us. We must be ready to give 100%. Up to, he says, don't, don't lose the analogy there, up to and including death, he's saying. Because the cross was an instrument of death. That's extreme ownership of your faith. In the Greek here, these are all present tense verbs. So continuous, ongoing action. If we are following Jesus, right, we need to be continually bringing our crosses with us, getting ready to die for the sake of being his disciples. Imagine that. Again, imagine the weight of Try and put yourself in that, that context where Jesus says that. Pack a cross. That's, that's how serious I am about following. You, you better be ready to give everything. My dear friend Ryan Boyce tends to say, following Jesus won't cost you anything except everything. And that, that just encapsulates it. The idea that, no, this isn't just a happy thing of, of, come on, Jesus, into my heart, and I will add you to my already pretty awesome life. You are my life. And everything is wrapped up in you. And how this flies in the face of our soft, squishy, American, evangelical Christianity that we hear sometimes. Again, just accept Jesus into your heart. Give him role. God's my co-pilot. Come on in. I'm driving the bus. Just take a seat somewhere back there between, you know, family, sports, career, all that stuff. Somewhere in the back. And, and thanks, Jesus, for taking care of that eternal life problem that I had. That's, that's a very different Jesus than the Bible, isn't it? And we see that in the passage today. Being a follower of Jesus is a life of radical sacrifice. And, and look at verse 39. That's what, that's what he brings us to. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says that our own feeble attempts to hold on to this life, to hold on to the things that we value, to hold on to the things that we think are important or will bring us joy or comfort or even those things that are dear to us in our families, he says the more you try to hold on to those things, the more you lose sight of what I'm trying to bring. He says all those things are temporary. And he uses this shocking language that the more you try to hold on to your life, you're actually losing it. And the more that you hold on to me and put me at the center of your life, the more you're actually going to gain true life. Give ourselves completely wholly to Jesus, even up to and including physical death, because that actually brings true life. How's that for a self-help philosophy? That's not going to sell many books on the Christian bookstore, right? You want to get your life to the next level. You want to experience a new breakthrough. You want to get that, that promotion. And Jesus says, guess what? Instead of focusing on self, just throw that all away and focus on me. Follow me. That's life. Instead of focusing on how much you can get for yourself, give yourself away to me. That's not going to sell many books, but that's what Jesus says. And so I'll say it this way. Spiritual life is found in death. Spiritual life is found in death. 
It's an, an American obsession, a neurotic focus on ourselves, how to make our lives better, and Jesus flips that on its head. He says, you want life? It's found in death. This is, this is then primarily death to self, death to that obsession with self, death to sin in all its forms. Freedom from sin brings life. But as, as Christians in hostile places know, like Afghanistan, and I feel like I'm talking about Afghanistan all the time, but church, it is just such a, I mean, we're right here in Matthew 10. The providence of God is giving us real life events to show us this in actual life. In places like Afghanistan, this could actually mean physical death. Imagine, again, like last week, imagine reading this passage when you're sitting in, in Kabul and waiting for the Taliban to come to your door. I was listening to a podcast in, in, in Afghanistan. It was an Afghani pastor, but in Afghanistan, they put your, your religion right on your ID card. And being anything other than Muslim is illegal. And so over the last decade or so, things were a little bit more amenable to things just because of whatever, right? The Taliban was at bay, but now they're not. And so they're going and they're checking ID cards. And if that thing says anything other than Muslim, it's a death sentence. And when people come and they give them their... This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, like last week, they can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Right? And he, they, people cling to this church in a way that we cannot... Perhaps a helpful way to apply this would be to look at another place where Jesus says the same thing. And I put it in your bulletins. Pat read it for us. But, but jump over to Luke. When things are repeated in Scripture, it's important. And Jesus repeats this. And the authors, spirit-inspired authors of Scripture record this a couple times for us. Look at Luke 9, starting at verse 23. And he said, To all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus says by trying to gain the whole world, Jesus says we forfeit our spiritual lives. I want to jump back up to there in Luke 23 and pull that application from it. That is a direct parallel to this verse. Jesus says three things. Jesus says, you're, you're a disciple, you should be characterized by three things. You should be denying yourself, you should be taking up your cross, and you should be following him. And he says, if you're not doing those things, you're not my disciple. That's what he says. You're not worthy of me, in Matthew. He says, first, deny yourself. Christians, church, we should regularly be saying no to ourselves. We should be living lives of discipline and self-control. No, I'm not going to have one more drink. No, I'm not going to eat more food. No, I'm not going to click on that picture in the margin of the news site. No, I'm not going to look at porn. No, I'm not going to go have sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm not going to cheat on my test or my paper. I'm not going to cut that corner at work. No, I'm not going to lose my patience with my kids again or my spouse again or my neighbor again. You have to be saying no. That's self-denial. Jesus says that's what a disciple says. Step one, self-denial. The first step in being a disciple is say no to yourself and bow the knee to Jesus. Think about that. That's the first step in coming to Jesus in the first place. Guess what? I don't have it. 
I don't have it, Lord. I know I need you. I know I'm a sinner, and I know I need to come to you, and his name is Jesus, and I can't save myself, so I'm denying my, my I'm demoting myself. I'm no longer God of my life anymore. You are. I'm denying myself. I'm coming to you. That's the first step in becoming a disciple. Anyway, we place our faith in God, not ourselves. Life is not about us. I know that as Americans, our heads just exploded because it's like, no, it is about us. Step outside, go on the internet, read any advertisement. Everything's about us. It's not about us. That's what Jesus says. That's why it's radically countercultural. It's about the glory of God. Puritan Matthew Henry wrote, the first lesson in Christ's school is self-denial. That's the first lesson. It's self-denial. Second, Jesus says, take up your cross. Realize what's at stake. Again, be deadly serious about your faith. Remember, church, we have the Holy Spirit living inside us. When we come to faith in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit who comes to reside in us. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can do that. We can obey him. We can deny ourselves. We can put sin to death. Be serious about our, safe, our, our faith. Be ready to go all the way if necessary. Treat sin, here's one, treat sin like it's dead to you because our old selves are nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ and so sin shouldn't get a vote in how we live our lives. Romans chapter 6 Super hard to turn pages right now with all of this humidity, but we're going to do okay. Romans 6, 11 says this, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But when we have that opportunity to sin, when we are tempted and, and as Christians, right, y'all know, I picked up some Southern when I was going through the States, okay, y'all know that, that you, 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 you feel that conviction right that little light comes on that says you shouldn't be here you shouldn't be doing this you shouldn't be looking at that site you shouldn't be reacting like that you shouldn't be whatever you shouldn't be that thank god for that voice because that voice says guess what you're saved and the holy spirit's living within you and also listen to that voice because the holy spirit says get out whatever you're doing stop it Consider it dead. Don't let it have influence on you. That's what that Holy Spirit is saying. Just take up your cross. And third, be following Jesus. Again, present, active, indicative in the Greek. Be following Jesus. Continuous action. You stepped off the path. Guess what? Be getting back onto the path. That's what discipleship is. Literally, when a rabbi took on a follower, their job was to physically follow that rabbi wherever they went. They wouldn't step off the path, right? That, keep that in mind as we're following Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're following him. We're keeping in step with him, as scripture says. This shows the power and the necessity of the local church and committing to the local church because we need to help each other stay on that path, don't we? That's what the church does. That's why we gather to sit under the preaching of God's word. That's why we scatter in smaller groups and in care groups and have Bible studies and discipleship relationships. Perhaps most of all, that's why we value biblical church membership. We take it very seriously and as vital to following Jesus Christ. That's why we have membership classes, for example, on September 12th at 6 p.m. That's why we have member meetings, for example, like tonight at 6 p.m., why every member gets an under-shepherd to what? Encourage them to follow Jesus. 
to come to faith, deeper understanding of their faith. Perhaps most of all, that's why God gave us the church. And we take that very, very seriously. Spiritual life is found in death. The church helps us deny ourselves, take up our cross, and be following Jesus. But why bother? My, still quest, my, my question still remains, right? Why bother? Look at verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. It's kind of similar to last week. This passage could be a sermon all on its own. And I debated leaving this out and preaching those other verses. But then I also realized I love Matthew, but I'd like to finish before 2030, probably. So we want to we we have some consideration. And then, as usual, the more that I studied this and prayed about it, I'm like, no, there are tentacles in this passage to what came before this. This, this, this really is one thought here. CSB translates this as the one who welcomes you welcomes me. And the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Now, our word here for receive or welcome means to accept someone. And by accepting or receiving or welcoming them, you're not just, it's not just hospitality, welcoming them into your home. It means you're accepting who they are. If they claim to be a prophet, you're accepting them as a prophet. If they claim to be a righteous person, you're accepting what that righteous person is teaching. So you are then just also fully on board with who they are. And so Jesus says, guess what? You're welcoming me. You're welcoming my message. You're welcoming me, you're understanding what I'm saying as truth. Commentators point out that someone in this view is usually an official agent carrying the full capacity and authority of the one who authorized him to go on this mission. The one whose message it really is. And we can see this pretty clearly in the words of Jesus that he was sent as the official agent. He says, my father sent me, the one who sent me, I'm sent. You receive me, you receive my message as being God's message. That's what he's saying. My message is the Father's message, and you receive me, you're receiving his message. You're receiving me as being from the Father. I would say this is a deity claim. I would say this is Jesus says, you're receiving me because I'm from God. And guess what? You're receiving me as God. And I think that's where he's going with this. And then he uses examples to demonstrate a flow and to prove a point and, and follow this with me he's saying whoever receives you so he's talking to the 12 disciples right talking to them whoever receives you then receives me so the disciples go out in the name of jesus they're saying the same message and they are received hopefully they're received as authorities as the ones the the authorized agent being sent from jesus and they receive jesus's message so when people receive the message from disciples they're receiving the message of jesus they're understanding it they're accepting it he says also people should see this as a message the message as true not just again welcoming them into our homes he talks about a prophet, and he talks about a righteous one. Prophet is pretty straightforward. A prophet is speaking, a prophet's job is to speak a word from the Lord to the people. And if they receive that word, what are they essentially saying? We agree. 
We think this is true. And the reward that they would get is the prophet's reward would be the prophet does the work of God and is blessed in doing the work of God. Therefore, the people then share in that because it's truth. And they share in the reward of receiving truth from God. The righteous one is a little bit more dicey. I, I side with the commentators that say it's probably tied to teaching. And so anyone who is then bringing righteous and true teaching, people are receiving it as true. And therefore, in parallel to the prophet, which I think it makes sense, you receive it as true, therefore you receive that reward. Just like I have the reward every week of bringing God's truth to you, hopefully, through his word. It's my favorite thing to do. I love it. And I'm rewarded in doing that in spiritual blessings. And so hopefully, you are rewarded as you hear truth from God. And that happens all throughout the week in, in Highlands Bible Church in, in relationships. When people are speaking and teaching and we hear something, we're edified in it. We're built up. We receive that reward because we believe it's true. If a mature believer applies a scriptural truth, we should take heed and we are better for hearing it and obeying it. He uses then the term little ones, and, and it's probably not referring to children here. As there doesn't seem to be any children in view, or there, there could be, of course. But, but again, in, in, the, in the flow, he's rather talking about the littlest level disciple. The one who maybe isn't the super mature believer. The one who maybe has just this, this much of a grasp on the gospel and just enough to know that they're sinner in need of grace. And he says, guess what? That, even the littlest, immaturest disciple that doesn't know the answers to where's the Ark of the Covenant and what happened to Enoch and who are the Nephilim and all of that other stuff, right? The one who doesn't know all those answers. That was just for you, Ron. All those answers. He says, guess what? You're a fully authorized agent of me. And if you go out and you proclaim the gospel to someone and they give you a cup of cold water, a symbolization of welcoming you, somebody would think about it, it's Israel. It's hot. You, you, you guys think it's hot today? It's hotter in Israel right now, trust me. So, so they, they, a cup of cold water is a welcome treat in a desert climate. And it's a sign of hospitality, but it's an also a sign of welcoming. So guess what? Somebody who doesn't really know that much, somebody who knows this much that says, I'm just a sinner in need of grace. I'm just a beggar who's going to show another beggar where to get crust of bread. I know the gospel. I'm going to pass that on. Guess what? That person who welcomes that in with a cup of cold water will by no means lose their reward. Because you're rewarded. You share in the reward that then this message brings. If you welcome any and all disciples of Jesus, meaning that you accept the message, the gospel, you are rewarded for it. Of course, the first and primary way you're rewarded for it is fellowship with God is restored. Your sins are forgiven. You're adopted into the family. The wrath of God, as we just sung, has been removed. You are then adopted into his family. But think about how that disciple then, or those 12 disciples, or us, when we muster up enough courage to share the gospel with someone, Think about what that came through. That's the link to the first part of this passage, right? That came through what? That came through sacrifice. That came through those awkward moments. That came through self-denial. That came through taking up our cross. That came through a constant focus in following Jesus. And so I'll say this as I land the plane. There is great reward in receiving the message of Jesus. There is great reward in receiving the message of Jesus, right? 
We usually jump right to eternal life when we think of reward for receiving the message of the gospel, right? This is where we need to clear away some of the, the tentacles, again, of American evangelicalism and separate that from actual biblical Christianity. I hope you guys know that. The teachers that you see on the YouTubes and the other places, right, they may not be actually faithful to this. So check this. Make sure... And I've said it before, primarily our, our spiritual diet should be in the context of our local church. But be careful. American evangelicalism says all we need to do is accept Jesus into our heart and we'll have the reward of forgiveness and eternal life. But that church is a truncated gospel. If it just says, what Jesus can do for me, I have this sin problem, Jesus fixed it, that's a truncated gospel. One who doesn't tell the whole story or worse, because what did that actually just do? It just solved the problem for who? Us. And made then the gospel about us in that truncated sense. I'm not saying it's not true. Of course it's true. We all need to be forgiven. We have sin against God. But if, that's your def if you stop there, be careful. That could be a self-focused gospel. Right? And that's what Jesus is, is railing against right here. He's saying it's self-denial. It's following me. That's what Jesus has been laying down. It comes through sacrifice. It's not about us. It's about denying ourselves. And that conflicts with the self-centered gospel. But that's the biblical gospel. It's not about our, here's the key word, kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God. And we need to remember that. The all-encompassing kingdom of God. And when we're tempted to think that the reward is there in giving up, or that there might be any reward in giving up our whole lives for the kingdom of God, Jesus says, guess what? That's the key to the greatest reward there is. Carson calls it the fruit of discipleship. And of course, we jump to, well, what kind of rewards are we talking about here, Pastor Mike? Well, think fruits. Hopefully, everybody went to Galatians and talked about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are some great rewards, aren't they? Again, the prosperity gospel has twisted this and said your rewards are material blessing or the promotion or this goes right or you find a parking space at the mall if anybody goes to malls anymore. Like all that's nonsense. Spiritual blessings he's talking about. Ephesians 1. You want to know spiritual blessings? Read Ephesians 1. It says we've already been blessed with spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. We've been lavished with his love and grace. We know God and his will. We have a beautiful inheritance waiting in heaven for us. We have the understanding that our God is sovereign and good and working all things to the counsel of his will. We are adopted into his family. We are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? One day we will be like him. We will be free of sin and sickness and death, and we will be that way forever. Those are the rewards we're talking about here. Just like don't truncate the gospel, don't truncate God's rewards into thinking, boy, it'd be really nice if I had some extra money in the bank. That's not what we're talking about here. And church, in all of those things that I just read, those are a fraction of our rewards. Jesus says, no eye can imagine, no ear can understand what God has prepared for those who love us. Don't sell yourself short in thinking only of this life where Jesus tells us true life is found in him. And again, so where do all those rewards, how in the world do we then get to that place of reward? Put those two parts of the passage together. Rewards are great, but Jesus tells us they come through sacrifice. 
And so I'll say this. A disciple's reward can only come through sacrifice. A disciple's reward can only come through sacrifice. It's not just about accepting Jesus into our hearts and then going on to live a comfortable life absent of any sacrifice, but rather we receive the message of Jesus as from a prophet, as from a righteous one, as being the very word of God and, the, and our life raft, our understanding that this is our life. We receive it as it was passed down from father to son to the 12 by the power of the Holy Spirit to prophets and teachers and to the church. We have this. We have an embarrassing riches of this. You're found with this. The Taliban, I know I'm talking about Afghanistan all the time, but they're looking at people's phones. And if they have a Bible app, guess what? That's another identification. We don't have to worry about that here. I probably got nine Bibles on my phone. We have them everywhere. We have this. This is the message of God that's been passed down and now to us. It's been preserved. We dare not receive it casually. We don't want to welcome just the person, come on in and have some small talk and a cup of cold water. No, we want to accept what the message says as truth. A disciple of this message is not afraid of the sword of conflict. A disciple knows the sacrifices that loving Jesus above all will bring conflict with some. Sometimes we act like, wow, my my neighbor next door doesn't really like me very much, and he looks at me like I'm weird because I go to church and I talked about Jesus. Amen! They're supposed to. That's what Jesus is saying. And again, pray for our brothers and sisters who have it far worse. And the Holy Spirit will enable you to do that what he's called us to. Where is the conflict in your life because of faith in Jesus? There should be some tension in our relationships with the world and our non-believing friends and, the sh- and surely within our own hearts. The disciple knows the sacrifice of how Jesus himself defined being a disciple. Where are you denying yourself? Where are you taking up your cross? Where are you consistently following Jesus? Your life needs to be characterized. My, I'm saying you guys. My life needs to be. You have no idea the conviction that went down in the law office this week. I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Just this, I, I need to deny myself. I need to take up my cross. I need to follow Jesus. I just have the joy of passing on the conviction that I get about Thursday to you guys on Sunday. If you're here this morning and you consider yourself a baby Christian, or you're struggling to gain spiritual maturity in Christ, or you just think, man, I'm just, I don't know if I'm ever going to say the right thing or do the right thing or whatever. I don't know if I'm ever going to bear any fruit for the Lord. I just, I don't know. Church, take encouragement. The struggle for growth is a sign that you've received the message. You are a legit disciple, albeit a little disciple. Seek to grow in the knowledge of God and the faith and be bold and speak, and you'll receive the cup of cold water as your reward that people are accepting the message, but they're not accepting you, they're accepting Jesus. And church, let us willingly embrace the life of a disciple in all of its sacrifices as we walk in the spiritual blessings of being in Christ today and the hope of the eternal reward that awaits us. Father, we Thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love. We thank you for the reality, Lord, that we are strengthened through Jesus, through the spirit that we have. Father, let us, let us kind of peel away what the world says a Christian is 
or even some false teachers say a Christian is. Let us understand and take from this passage what you say a Christian is. Lord, and Lord, let us, in this terrifying verse of, of being able, Lord, to love you supremely of more than anything, even our own family, Lord, our wives, our spouses, our kids, their blessings, but they make lousy gods. They are not to be our God. You alone are God. May we share that with no one. And Lord, in and of all of that, let us count the cost. Let us look fear and worry and anxiety in the face. And let us say following Jesus, despite all the sacrifices, is worth it. Because of who you are. And because what awaits us as we follow Jesus through sacrifice for our rewards. Focus us on these things. Make us strong for these matters, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.